1: As the country continues to battle the spread of the novel coronavirus, many are desperately in search of answers, solutions, and treatment options. In search himself for something of a cure, President Trump has repeatedly touted one particular drug as the likely savior for COVID-19 patients, hydroxychloroquine. At this point, hydroxychloroquine is an unproven treatment for COVID-19. It's still in the testing stages as a treatment for this particular virus. It can have dangerous side effects for some, and medical professionals are divided on its likelihood of success. Yet none of those factors have stopped the president from advocating that people infected with the novel coronavirus consider taking this drug in consultation with their doctors.
2: And the other thing that we've bought a tremendous amount of is the hydroxy. Chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine, which I think, as you know, it's a great malaria drug. It's worked unbelievably. It's a powerful drug on malaria. Uh, And there are signs that it works on this, some very strong signs.
1: Many doctors and scientists advising Trump have been advocating that he exercise more caution in talking about the drug's potential promise but others inside the White House and on Fox News have been influencing Trump, offering him anecdotal evidence of the drug's success. Meanwhile, clinical trials for this particular use of hydroxychloroquine and clinical trials for other potential treatments for COVID are being expedited in a time of crisis. These trials would usually take quite a long time, years even. So who decides what kinds of trials and processes can be expedited in an emergency? What are the risks when things move quickly, and do they outweigh the potential rewards? In a time when Americans are desperately in search of a cure, what's the role of the president? This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. Before we get into the reasons why President Trump has chosen this particular drug to put his faith in and tout publicly, I wanted to understand how drug approval works and how hydroxychloroquine fits into that picture. It turns out, to no one's surprise, clinical trials are a complicated process. Dr. Mark Gladwin is the chair of the Department of Medicine at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. He's also a pulmonary and critical care specialist. Dr. Gladwin started by explaining the process for developing new drugs under normal circumstances.
2: So normally there's a very long approval process for medications that that involves sort of the backbone science of whether a drug is likely to work.
1: Often, the early process begins with models of how the drugs might work.
2: Whether it's everything from computation in silico modeling of a molecule-protein interaction to a high-throughput chemical screen, of an action, of a medication.
1: And if those models pan out, scientists bring their tests to life.
2: Then these either small molecules or antibodies are taken to oftentimes animal models of disease, uh, rodent models of disease, typically mouse models.
1: Success there means the trials move on to safety.
2: And typically there's two species of safety testing. And this might be uh, dosing to a very high dose of a drug to make sure it's safe. And then after going through extensive animal safety, we go to what are called phase one trials, where we look at whether it's safe, typically in paid normal volunteers. And there again is a dose escalation to determine the maximal tolerated dose in humans.
1: After safety testing comes something called a phase one, two study.
2: Where we're gonna look at safety in patients maybe with a particular disease, And we might at that point look at preliminary efficacy. After that, we go to larger phase two trials of efficacy. In other words, does the drug work for a specific clinical endpoint?
1: And there's one more phase before a drug moves from clinical trial to review by the Food and Drug Administration.
2: We go to phase three, which are very large placebo-controlled trials.
1: Okay, so you've laid out the process for trials of new drugs, but what happens with drugs that already have FDA approval for other uses, the way that hydroxychloroquine does, for example?
2: In this type of situation, we can go right to a phase 1-2 or a phase 3 study where we immediately test whether the drug works for a new clinical indication. It's also important to note that for a drug like hydroxychloroquine, we're allowed to use these drugs. As clinicians, we're allowed to use these drugs off-label meaning we can try them for a new indication, even though they haven't been proven to work for that indication. And that's what's happening uh, internationally with hydroxychloroquine for COVID-19.
1: So then in emergency times like we're in now, how do some of these processes change? Do we have support built into our system to expedite certain treatments in times of crisis?
2: There are two approaches in a time of crisis. And I know we're talking about hydroxychloroquine or other experimental therapies for COVID-19. And physicians often have to extrapolate clinical information, either from the use of a drug for another indication, maybe there's very preliminary data that suggests a drug might, might work. Sometimes there's really only theoretical data that a drug may work. And physicians then have to make an informed decision about whether to try that drug for a a new disease or a new indication. And again, this process is called off-label use. The off-label use of drugs is not something new, but it's something that's often done. And I think in times of emergencies with emerging diseases, we tend to do that more.
1: So then, as you said, there are two ways to expedite testing of a drug for a new use. One way is by doctors just directly prescribing that drug to patients off-label, and then the other is by having patients formally participate in a clinical trial where scientists can then draw conclusions about the results. Obviously, for some patients, time is of the essence. So how long does a clinical trial like this usually last?
2: So a traditional clinical trial can often last a long time. These trials may involve multiple countries, hundreds if not thousands of patients And it can take a long time to identify patients with the right inclusion and exclusion criteria, seek out informed consent, enroll patients, and then analyze the data and complete the trial. That's that's actually once the trial starts. You can imagine the average clinical trial can take a year to 17 months to even go through the regulatory process to start. So a large phase two or phase three trial can often take as long as three years to start and complete.
1: So then how during these times are we able to see much more expedited clinical trials?
2: In the case of COVID-19, we are using drugs that have already been FDA approved. So it's quite easy to jump over the animal safety, jump over the human phase one and go right to the clinical trial. Does the drug work? And so people are getting approval from local IRBs or multi-center IRBs. By the way, the IRB is a review group that determines whether a clinical trial is uh, safe, whether the monitoring is appropriate, whether there's a scientific justification for the trial, and the IRB will monitor during the trial to make sure that we are safeguarding uh, the interests of our patients in that trial. We okay, found okay. just uh, here at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, that our IRBs have turned all their attention and their priority to new research and treatments surrounding COVID-19. And we're seeing this really across the country. And I think internationally that there has been a priority placed on this. So when we put in a, a proposal, we we have rapid approval. In fact, one great example is if you want to try a new drug and you want to register the trial, the FDA provides something called a IND, which essentially is an investigational status for that drug or that treatment that you're trying. And the FDA has has done something very innovative and very forward-thinking for the case of convalescent plasma. This is a blood product. This would be the serum or the plasma from our blood and we would collect that plasma after we've been infected with SARS-CoV-2. We've developed antibodies and now this plasma is called convalescent plasma. And our plasma now is loaded with antibodies that have the potential to bind to and neutralize the virus. And so the FDA provided an across-the-board IND for the use of convalescent plasma in clinical trials for patients with COVID-19.
1: All right, I want to pivot a a little bit just to talk specifically about hydroxychloroquine. Can you just explain what this drug is and what it's typically used for?
2: So hydroxychloroquine is an old medication. It has anti-inflammatory properties. It has some anti-parasitic properties targeting the malaria parasite and it's thought to have some antiviral properties. It's used to suppress the immune system in the setting of patients with autoimmune diseases. It's chronically used, and we know it has a very good safety profile. So so that's sort of a little bit about what the drug's currently used for. So what's happened now is people have thought that maybe this drug would work for SARS-CoV-2 infection and there's been use of it extensive use of it off label for that new indication and again there's very little data on the efficacy in other words where it, whether it works or not for infection with SARS-CoV-2 there have been a handful less than a handful of clinical trials that have many weaknesses for example either no control group or imbalances between the treatment and the control group and it leaves us very uncertain whether the drug actually works.
1: Then why is it that during these times we're hearing so much about this particular drug?
2: I think hydroxychloroquine, it's been rapidly embraced because there is a real hunger and need to offer something uh, for patients with this infection. If you look at the very short history since December, of COVID-19, we've already gone through two drugs that everyone was excited about, and they didn't work. The first one was a drug for HIV called ritonavir-lopinavir. There was a lot of people in China and in Italy were given that treatment, and then a trial showed that it didn't work. The second one, even more concerning, was high-dose steroids. These were used in China and also used in Italy, and we now know that high-dose steroids worsen the course of COVID-19 disease. So already the first two drugs we pulled off the shelf didn't work. And now we've pulled a third drug, hydroxychloroquine. And with only three very weak trials to look at, uh, people have been really desperate to receive something. And because the drug's already FDA approved, because it's relatively safe, there's a sense that, you know, why not try this medication? But we just have to really back up and trust in the scientific process that a clinical trial allows people to have access to the drug and at the same time can very rapidly and definitively and scientifically answer the question, does the drug really work? And if the drug doesn't work, we rapidly pivot to the next treatment. If the drug works, we rapidly provide that drug to everybody. It's so important. With a disease as lethal as COVID-19, that we're on solid footing with our treatment recommendations as we move forward.
1: Now, what are the risks when using a drug like this? Trump has notably said in reference to implementing more widespread use of this drug, he said, what do you have to lose? So to his point, what do patients with COVID have to lose by taking this drug?
2: So first of all, hydroxychloroquine is a very safe medication. It's been around a long time. We know a lot about it. Having said that, there are really some things we still do not know. Number one is we don't know the dose that would be effective against SARS-CoV-2. We don't know even whether it works in improving COVID-19 because the clinical data is very limited. There are also some potential adverse events of the drug that we have to think about. The virus that causes COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2, can infect the heart and it can cause cardiovascular problems. And so we don't really know whether hydroxychloroquine could interact in a bad way with the viral infection on the heart to cause more of an electrical problem. The other problems, people with COVID-19 are sick and their electrolytes can get abnormal. They can get kidney injury, they can get low blood pressure, and they can get electrolyte disturbances. And electrolyte disturbances like potassium, for example, or magnesium, that can also affect the propensity for us to develop arrhythmias if we were on a drug like uh, hydroxychloroquine. I do wanna mention one more adverse event that that is theoretical, that, that we worry about. And as you know, we're seeing more and more COVID-19 cases among our African-American population. And African-Americans are at higher risk in this country for comorbidities or diseases like diabetes, hypertension, chronic kidney disease. And these comorbidities appear to make COVID-19 more severe. There's a very common genetic mutation among African Americans in an enzyme called G6PD. And hydroxychloroquine can cause anemia in people that have G6PD deficiency. And we just have very little safety data on the use of hydroxychloroquine in people with G6PD deficiency. So we really don't know whether hydroxychloroquine is going to be safe in this population. And
1: what are some of the perhaps lesser considered effects when you have a president claiming that this drug can work to treat COVID? Do people who need this drug for other conditions it's already been approved for have a harder time getting the medicine they need, for example?
2: we do worry there's a lot of patients with systemic lupus erythematosus where the drugs proven to work for them and we do worry a little bit about the availability of the drug for these patients uh, could be limited if so many people are using the drug off label
1: now the medical community is often cautious this process takes a long time of course that's very important and but you've spoken to how in a moment like this it's been beneficial to sort of move more quickly through these processes to find remedies that work for people, especially in drug using drugs that are already FDA approved. Are there any drawbacks in this process being expedited? Are things being missed or left out, or are any risks not being addressed?
2: So, I think the main drawback is what we've seen so far, which is rapidly deploying poorly designed trials. You know, many of the trials that everyone's excited about have involved 30 people. Uh, sixty people, the control group and the treatment group are imbalanced. One of the trial didn't even have a control group you know we we so what we're doing is we're looking at data that's inherently flawed, and we know for any drug there's less than a ten percent chance the drug actually works so this idea that you're going to benefit from an experimental therapy is really not stood the test of time. If we look at human history, most drugs that we try fail. It's really that rare drug that actually works. So what we want to do is rapidly deploy well-designed trials. I don't think we need to make this tough choice that we face as physicians and our patients face. This decision, do I take a drug that's relatively safe, that's already FDA approved, that may or may not work versus participating in a clinical trial where we actually test whether the drug works or not, and we monitor you during the clinical trial for safety, that that choice doesn't have to be a Faustian bargain. There are ways to do clinical trials today that are very rapid. We can make these drugs available for our patients in the context of a clinical trial where we're monitoring safety and we're giving patients the opportunity to try that drug. And by participating in this trial, we're not only having the potential to help help ourselves, but we're contributing to our our future patients who are infected with SARS-CoV-2.
1: And to your knowledge, the speed that you have witnessed now, is that unprecedented or is this in times of crisis, we we expedite certain processes in order to get possible treatments to patients?
2: I think over time, our regulatory bodies and our research organizations have become much more nimble. I think a lot of this was driven by the AIDS epidemic. My career started as a med student and an intern. I was very much brought up at the very beginning of the HIV AIDS epidemic. And at that time, it took a long time for trials to be approved and executed and drugs to be approved. And the federal government, the FDA was very responsive and they created a number of pathways for rapid expedited review of clinical trials and approval based on positive results. And we're seeing the benefits of that here, where the FDA, our local IRBs, The regulatory agencies are really prioritizing trials, testing new therapies for COVID-19. Again, I just want to state that everything we do in clinical medicine is based on the principles of science and the scientific process. And when we face a disease as severe as COVID-19, it becomes more important than ever that with every step, we advance our confidence in the treatment principles. And that we know that if we're gonna offer a drug to thousands of people, even if it's a relatively safe drug, we need to know that that treatment is gonna make an effect, that it's gonna make a dent in the disease. And if it doesn't, we need to know that because we need to move quickly, pivot and test the next thing. That we have to rapidly evolve to beat these emerging pandemics. And so the best way to do that is in the context of Uh, rapidly activated clinical trials. We just don't have to make this choice between empiricism and science. I think that we can rapidly provide drugs for people in the context or in the setting of a carefully monitored clinical trial.
1: despite the lack of... Hi, everyone. I'm investigative journalist Kylie Lowe, and I'm here to tell you about my weekly podcast, Dark Down East. Each episode, I take you to my home in New England, where we truly get to know the people at the center of the cases we dive into. Join me and dig into some cases you won't hear about anywhere else. Listen to new episodes of Dark Down East every Thursday, or check out the extensive catalog of existing episodes now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Strong empirical evidence thus far, President Trump has expressed a strong belief that hydroxychloroquine will be an effective treatment for COVID patients. National political reporter Robert Costa, who reports on the White House, talked to me about the reasons why Trump is embracing this drug and who the president is listening to about its effectiveness and its safety. So President Trump has repeatedly touted one potential treatment for COVID, and that's hydroxychloroquine. Where did Trump learn about this drug? Can you sort of walk me through the evolution of Trump learning about hydroxychloroquine as a potential treatment for COVID?
0: As he stares down this pandemic and an economic collapse, a political crisis, President Trump is looking for a silver bullet. And according to his advisors who have spoken to the Post, he sees a silver bullet medically, politically in hydroxychloroquine. And he's been hearing about it not only from his task force and medical experts around him who have been reserved about its possibilities. But he's hearing it also from friends in New York, including his longtime attorney, Rudy Giuliani. Uh, He's heard it about it from friends anecdotally who have been to New York hospitals and and from doctors who have been working with COVID-19 patients. And so when you think about President Trump, he has this formal federal cabinet of people around him, who are informing him on medical issues. But he also has this kitchen cabinet of informal advisors, And that also includes Fox News hosts such as Laura Ingram, who we reported a few days ago brought two doctors who are regular on-air guests on her program in what she dubs her medicine cabinet to the White House to brief the president about this anti-malaria drug.
1: Now, what are these informal advisors telling Trump about the effectiveness of this drug?
0: It's important to note that hydroxychloroquine is unproven treatment for COVID-19. It's still in testing stages, and it has had dangerous side effects for some, And, and medical professionals are certainly divided on its capability. And the infectious disease expert on the president's task force, Anthony Fauci, has actually privately pleaded with the president to be more cautious about this drug. But There have been reports, anecdotally, that the drug is working to help people who are suffering from COVID-19. You hear about it from doctors. I've spoken to some of those doctors myself. And they say it has helped to lessen the symptoms, to help people who are struggling on ventilators. And the president, who is impatient to say the least, he wants to embrace its potential and offer it as something to the country that may be on the horizon as some kind of miracle drug.
1: Can you explain why the president is listening to advisors like Rudy Giuliani and Laura Ingram, who themselves aren't doctors during a time like this?
0: He's hyped hydrochloroquine as one of the biggest game changers in the history of medicine. And the whole episode here of his embrace of the drug really illustrates the degree to which the president prizes anecdotes and sometimes his own instincts and feelings over science and fact, and what's coming out of the Food and Drug Administration or what's coming out of any federal agency. And it's been a division within the White House about how much to tout this drug. You see the president's allies repeatedly touting it in conservative media outlets, but you have scientists who are helping the president and generally get along with the president being very wary of saying anything definitive about hydroxychloroquine while it's still being studied for its effectiveness. Throughout the course of my reporting on President Trump, I've often heard from people close to him that the most influential person in his orbit is the person who has spoken to him most recently. And so people who believe in hydroxychloroquine know this, and they're trying to inform the president in their own way. When Laura Ingram from Fox News came to the White House last Friday. She brought two guests from her program, Ramin Asqui, a Washington-based cardiologist, and Stephen Smith, uh, a New Jersey-based infectious disease specialist. And you also had the FDA commissioner, Stephen Hahn, in the Oval Office as well. And they made a detailed presentation, Smith did, Dr. Smith, about his views on treatment. And he talked about the benefits of hydroxychloroquine based on his own experiences and studies. And so you see in that snapshot, allies of hydroxychloroquine, believers in hydroxychloroquine, are telling the president of the United States, who they know relies on anecdote in his own gut, to think about things and stories beyond what he's hearing formally through the chain of command. And they also know that the president is skeptical at times of the the reserved way the bureaucracy functions. And so when he's confronted with this major crisis in his administration, he is casting a very wide net in terms of information, whether it's something he picks up online, reads in an article or hears as an aside in a White House meeting.
1: Do you have a sense from your reporting as to why Trump is choosing to tout this drug versus some other possibly promising treatments, particularly there's been some hope around blood plasma treatments for covid patients? Why this drug and and not one of these other paths?
0: You see a, a a clamor inside of the White House to find something pharmaceutically that could be an answer here because they're dealing with a economic crisis, a health crisis. And so beyond that circle of friends who are advocating for hydroxychloroquine, you do have White House advisors like Peter Navarro, who's heavily involved in the coronavirus response. He's been pushing hard for the drug inside. And the president has just been told a lot about hydroxychloroquine. And yes, he, he's been told it has an effect on the heart's electrical system, and it could affect how it resets between contractions, but he, he, he thinks that this is still the pathway to go. What, what's the problem here is for many health experts is that they think the president is fine to believe in the drug as a citizen, as a person, anyone can have a belief or an optimism about a certain drug. But they worry that the president is giving too much of a boost to an unproven drug uh, before the FDA makes its formal approval. And whether the president would search around for another possible drug that could be helpful, he he very well could. But at this point, it's hydroxychloroquine that has captured his imagination.
1: Now, when we talk about that boost that the president has the power to give a treatment in this case – Is this something that comports with what we've seen in history, a president possibly pushing a treatment publicly before it's been confirmed effective? Or when we consider the power of the president, is this a reasonable tool for him to use, exerting pressure to expedite momentum?
0: It's highly unusual when you ask, can he do that? He can do anything in terms of what he says. He's an American. He's the president. He can have opinions but it's highly unusual for any president to weigh in before the Food and Drug Administration, especially in this kind of repetitive advocacy way that we see from President Trump. And we've also reported in the post that the president has not only said positive things about hydroxychloroquine, he has pressured the FDA head, Dr. Hahn, to make favorable sentiments and statements about hydroxychloroquine. And he's regularly raised this with him in behind-the-scenes discussions. And the president has also voiced his own frustrations with doctors in the administration, including Dr. Hahn and Dr. Fauci, and keeps repeating that there is anecdotal evidence, and he's hoping they will say positive things at these news conferences he has every day.
1: Now, last question for you. This obviously isn't happening in a vacuum. How does the president's approach in this moment reflect his ongoing relationship with the scientific community and even with his own advisors?
0: You see President Trump at every turn not listening to the formal chain of command and always trying to hear what others in his orbit are saying. And this is, once again, an example of that. But we're seeing the president three years in to even more like himself, a president post impeachment who is breaking away from the way American presidents usually act in, in, in almost every part of his government. And he's leading the government, but he's also almost isolated at times from his own advisors, picking up evidence and stories and and pieces of data and building his own view of the world that he then presents at briefings that he shares on Twitter. And it doesn't follow what the federal government is doing because you have a federal government in the United States government still waiting to have any kind of conclusion on hydroxychloroquine, yet the head of the government is, is searching for something to help. But it's We see presidents in these kind of pandemics and crisis situations and world leaders do this sorts of thing, not always to the level of President Trump, but in France, for example, Emmanuel Macron has also expressed interest in in seeing what's going on with hydroxychloroquine. And there there is hope out there for it on many fronts, both here and abroad, but it's the way President Trump touts it before approval that has raised alarm inside and outside of the government.
1: All right. Thank you so, so much for your time. Thank you. This has been another episode of Can He Do That? The Washington Post has all of the information you need to stay on top of the latest coronavirus news. Sign up for our coronavirus newsletter to get our latest reporting and FAQs to keep yourself safe. Any article you click in the newsletter is free to access. To sign up, go to WashingtonPost.com slash virus newsletter. The Post is also offering live coverage and stories with critical health information for free every day on our homepage and at WashingtonPost.com coronavirus. And of course, you can also use The Washington Post's podcasts to stay informed without being overwhelmed. Always free online or on any podcast app. Find them all at WashingtonPost.com podcasts. All these links are available in the episode description. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by Carol Alderman and Ariel Plotnick, both of whom I miss seeing regularly, with design help from Kat Rudell-Brooks, logo art from Loretta Boglio, and theme music by Ted Muldoon.